Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I am just your host today as Ben's on holiday, so I am Jared Lee, but I'm not alone. With me is the Chief Pricing Actuary of Validus, Michael Senzer. Welcome, sir. Hello. Happy to be here. No, excited. First time joiner, but longtime listener of the podcast. Yes, definitely a, a fan from the beginning, I would yeah. say. <laughs> well, you're in Bermuda, so it's like the peak of our, our popularity sits in, <laughs> sits in, in the island. Absolutely. But Mike, you're uh, our first sort of practicing actuary in the podcast, or this is going to be a very heavy sort of price it episode as we talk about the nuance of reinsurance pricing and and what it looks like in your day job and kind of your career as, as an actuary. But before we dive into all of that stuff, I'd love to kind of ta- dive into how did you start in the industry? Everyone sort of finds their way here somehow. Would love to learn the beginning of your journey into reinsurance. Yeah, I can do that. But First, I'll say that maybe I'll be the first, but hopefully not the last. No, it, I'm sure this is so. going to be a trend, I think. <laughs> All right, we'll see. I'll, yeah, so um, for me, I think uh, I think about a couple of things in my journey into reinsurance. One thing, so I grew up in Florida and California, mm-hmm. so I thought about these, these kind of disasters and big events were part of my life in a way growing up, whether we'd watch the Weather Channel mm. or I was actually lived through the 1989 uh, World Series earthquake yeah. as a kid. So it always was something I was interested in and um, and curious about, Yeah. right? So then if you fast forward a few years later when I was a uh, unhappy math graduate student <laughs> and I'd, I'd come to the realization that I was not going to be able to make a living playing online poker. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I saw an advertisement for actuarial work and I said, hey, exams, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, from there I got uh, started off at Fireman's Fund out in the Bay Area, part of Allianz. And I was just really lucky that I got to try a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So I did pricing, cap modeling, so yeah. I got to dig in and understand those things a bit better. Reserving, and then um, I had a chance to come over to Germany yeah. when Fireman's Fund uh, got merged in with Allianz Global Corporate and Specialty. And there I got to really see kind of the whole portfolio yeah. in that role and support buying reinsurance. Mm -hmm. So I came up through the primary side, and I was looking to build and sculpt the program um, for AGCNS, and that really um, was super fun and exciting. Yeah. And then you're trying to, so I was doing the pricing and the support from the seed-in side, and then I got got a head on it to come out to Bermuda and work with uh, AIG Re and Validus, and, you know, when I was when I was sitting there looking out the window as the snow is falling, and then I'm doing these interviews on Zoom with all these <laughs> yeah. beautiful tan, intelligent people <laughs> in Bermuda, I said, "Okay, I, we could do this." Yeah, we there's, a, there's a sell, there's a sales point there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I because we're going to dive into a bunch of the nuance of reinsurance pricing and all of those things, but um, I think it makes sense given the the reference to online poker. Let's start with an analogy battle. As the first actuary on the cha- on this on the show, we can say we've done the broker bit. We've done an analogy battle for what underwriting looks like. Um, you you know the the analogy battle how it works. Um, so I'll start with my thoughts, and and you can probably do a vastly better one than me. Um, but I sort of looked at it as um, kind of like a sports bookie sports. Uh, Sort of someone setting the 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 pricing for what the spread should be on a game or similar, right? Mm. And you're looking at huge amounts of disparate data. How are different teams doing? Are certain players injured? Is it the weather in a certain stadium? Like, does that change the likelihood of teams' performance? And you try to set what you think the spread will be for a game to optimize bets in, but minimize sort of how much you might lose there. And therein lies the end of my <laughs> analogy. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, so at least that's uh, that's pretty good. So I still would get to live in Vegas potentially. Yep. Yep. See, living right. your dream <laughs> nice <laughs> of always being tan and <laughs> sitting in plenty of sun. Nice warm place. Yeah, I think um, when I think about it, mm. so I'll go a little farther afield uh, for for my approach to it. So we um, we're fairly big Marvel fans in my house, mm. and uh, one of my favorites is Spider Man, right? And what I think about from the what the pricing actuary does now, while we may have superhuman abilities, we're not usually out there in front, mm-hmm. right? I would think of Spider-Man himself is out there. That's a bit more the reinsurance underwriter yeah. out there fighting the bad guys. But where the pricing actuary tends to sit is his sidekick, 
his or her sidekick. So this is Ned. This is the guy in the van or at the at the base. He sees everything. And he's got this is happening. Look out. Don't go this way. Mm-hmm. Or make sure you take a left through that elevator shaft or this kind of thing. And you're you're hopefully you're telling that reinsurance underwriter this way is safe. Oh, please don't go that way. Yeah. Sometimes they do anyhow. But <laughs> that's kind of the perspective I have. Yeah. Brilliant. We'll uh, we'll check in with Cordy, but I think I think you probably got the, the creativity, especially, is always going to get a, a a positive vote on on the analogy battles. But um, when we talk about then what this looks like in practice, mm-hmm. I think there's at times a lot of mystery around how deals get priced. There's a huge amount of complexity that goes into that. Um, we when we were sort of talking before the show, you'd mentioned time you'd spent doing like film contingency and these types of things. So one of the challenges when we always set out uh, pricing battles between Ben and myself, it's always like, here is what is broadly a net new risk or something you may not have seen before. But that's not always the case. How do you think about when you see something that maybe not doesn't have a direct comparison? It's not you know, a broad, a really consistent, frequent like motor book or something that has a huge amount of data and historical evidence for it. Yeah, and I think it's it's all about the data, right? And um, you know, to paraphrase, uh, I th- I'm going to go with it was Voltaire, right? If the data did not exist, it would be necessary to invent it, mm-hmm. right? So we have to go and say, okay, I don't have all this perfect data. What can I get that's similar? Mm-hmm. What's an analogy to it? Um, so the example I was thinking about was, um, you know, there was one recently with Carrie Fisher in Star Wars, yeah. um, where we had a, a very a key actor pass away. But an even more classic example we had was um, with, uh, boy, people are really going to be questioning my movie choices after <laughs> this, but it's uh, Too Fast and Too Furious. This was FF7, mm-hmm. and Paul Walker, the star of the film, died during the filming, mm. right? And so you look at this and you say, how am I going to, now we've had this huge loss, and this is probably the most expensive one in the history of film contingency, mm-hmm. and now what do I do as I price the business going forward, right? How do I incorporate that? Because that's not going to happen every year. Yeah. Um, but you start to dig, you start to go through, maybe it's Wikipedia, or you look in your own history, and you say, okay, wait, well, you know, we've had lead actors die before, mm-hmm. Right, and you can go back and you can find some other examples. Um, there was one with uh, Brandon Lee, the son of Bruce Lee, yeah. who actually died on screen, basically during the filming. Yeah, The Crow, wasn't it? The Crow, but, yeah. yeah. Um, where they had, uh, similar to this rust thing we mm-hmm. saw now, where it was like the wrong bullet or the wrong gun, and, and, and so we have that loss, and then we had another one with John Candy, yeah. where he actually died during filming a comedy. And those events were not as severe. Yeah. So now you start to say, okay, now if I've had three, four events in 40 years, but then why was Fast and Furious so much worse? Mm. And you start to say, okay, well, all right, John Candy, this was a comedy. They were near the end. Brandon Lee, this was an action movie, but they were also close enough to the end they could manage. And then the big thing is, well, now actually something has changed. Nowadays, we have these CGI capabilities we did not have in the past. Mm -hmm. So they could actually, they were in the middle of the movie instead of at the end. And there's actually a way now that they could continue to kind of shoot. Mm -hmm. So they used his younger brother and CGI to finish the film. So then from the actuarial perspective, you say, okay, well now I've got frequency. Mm -hmm. I've got these years so I can kind of say a frequency. And then I have a view on severity and then I can say, oh, and now I do see there is a trend, mm-hmm. right? Because the movies can get more expensive, more complicated. So I have to take those earlier losses and probably increase them, yeah. what we would do today. Yeah. So then you're on your way, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because in many ways, it reminds me sim- in, in some ways to um, like the attritional losses in like motor, where previously, 10 years ago, a fender bender would be a few hundred dollars to fix. Mm. But now every fender has cameras and sensors and LIDAR attached to it that that same fender bender is thousands in damage. It's kind of similar in film contingency where we can do so much more to make the film what it was intended to be in these sort of cases. Right. But it's a huge cost. Good CGI is incredibly expensive and it's very time consuming. And 
the insurer is now picking up the bill for the amount of work where it used to be cases where we'd change the shot or you alluded to one with Marlon Brando where they just pretended he came in and everyone sort of acted as if he had arrived versus doing anything more. Like that was a very cheap way to solve the problem that this actor wasn't there. Um, So if you're looking at, if we stay in this a little bit longer, because I think it's super fascinating. If you look at that in advance of a film, are you taking into account the sort of personality traits or character flaws of of big actors? Are you taking into account um, the complexity of a shot where you might only get one take at you know a certain stunt or similar? Are these kinds of things that drive the price? Yeah, so I think what you'd have is a couple components, right? So you would have this, what we kind of described as this, this large loss load, mm. if you will, so this extreme event, which you might sort of keep relatively consistent or not change so much. But then what you're talking about as well would be a more sophisticated model. So you Mm. would kind of say, okay, let me look at what kind of movie is it, right? You know, we were talking about if you have, you know, when Harry met Sally, well, the CGI bucket is not, it's not so big, (laughs) right? Um, And if you, whereas when you have um, Fast and Furious, there's a thing, that's a kind of movie that's going to naturally be more risky. Yeah. And then you can take that, and that's one sort of set of factors, um, and then you would apply to that as well in a more, another interesting character, who's in the movie, mm-hmm. right? And so in uh, in my former in my former firm, there was this legend of some sort of database where they were had views on the riskiness of all the actors and directors and so yeah. on. Yeah, so there's there's actuaries embedded within the film industry who are <laughs> compiling these things, and there's some sort of rating model that... I think that's the claims, guys. I yeah. don't know. But yes, it is. Uh, I think those things come into the underwriting, and that's where you start to turn into underwriting at yeah. some point, I would say. Yeah, and there's that transitional element there. Um, so when you look at, the, so any individual film would be seen as like a single risk, like a facultative kind of policy. Would you, would you also evaluate entire, would you, would you ever por- build a portfolio of those with like a production company or similar where they have sort of like a, a treaty view of that? Or would you always treat them kind of as a one-off basis? Yes, you would do, I think you can do both. I think mm. we typically, you would think about it as a treaty because you would want to have some diversification. Sure. Right, you'd want to mix some things together because as a single risk, these are, you know, massive, yeah. right? These are massive things. Um, so yes, you would typically try to build a portfolio. You might do it maybe by studio or across. You know, if the primary carrier writes a lot of this, then they might go to a reinsurer to cover their whole portfolio. Yeah. But it's a good point and another issue in the industry where, you know, the films you did last year are not the films you're doing this year. Yeah. Right. So if you used to, you were doing rom coms and now you're going to do something else, the reinsurer is only going to find that out, kind of at the end of the year. Yeah. Right. So I think there's 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 scope there as well for better kind of, um, if you suddenly move in a more uh, uh, more action film direction, then it's a different risk and yeah. the reinsurer's got a bigger uh, bigger hold. Well, and I think this is, it's an excellent transition. You're a great co-host. <laughs> You're all over it these trends. Used to, I don't remember, some other guy. <laughs> yeah, some other guy used to be doing this. Um, no, but when you when you look at that, that the importance of that data, right? Because... In many ways, when you look at what gets to the reinsurer, I mean, is if you're writing, so a client of, of yours does a huge amount of film contingency as part of their product offering. Um, we might have it where it's sim- something as simple as, look at the premium growth on the contingency book. Right. But that's not telling the whole story because the premium growth might be growing quite significantly, but the, the types of films have shifted fundamentally and the exposure now is actually quite substantially larger. And if that isn't conveyed in the data and that's not part of the story, right? the reinsurer might be getting a part of the equation, right? a simple 20% growth in the premium of this class, which might sound excellent, but if they fundamentally change the underlying risk, the exposures may have gone up vastly more than the premium that they're taking in for those. And, and how do we make sure that the reinsurers are getting an, a clear assessment of that data because this is where you get things like price loading, as you mentioned, where if you have uncertainty about what you're really looking at, you just kind of have to to hedge add, it a little bit. You have to add more, yeah. And I think it's a good point, and it's a you have to also think, and this is another you know 
I think as an actual where you get to be involved in some of these things where you say, now, wait a second, if you think about the film industry again, uh, what about Netflix, mm-hmm. right? The whole industry's changed, right? And the film production's gotten bigger and better. You think about Game of Thrones, like mm-hmm. something like that wasn't possible really going back in time. I mean, that's, that's like a, a film in three sequels all in mm-hmm. one series. So the whole, you have to kind of think and say, okay, now I have to go back and sort of restate all my history and my data and, and approach it a bit differently, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you don't have that connection to the data, you're always, you're always falling behind. Yeah, yeah. If, if we then take a step into the sort of current climate of reinsurance, obviously we've come out of 1-1 now, we've just passed 1-4s. Um, there's a huge amount of talk about the, the hardening of this market from someone who's at the front line of pricing <laughs> risk and everything else. How do, how do you and the Validus team, as well, the, as well as the industry at a, as a whole, kind of think through what this looks like, what's driving the, the various increases in this hardening that a lot of people are saying is one of the harder markets we've seen in a couple decades now? Sure, and, and I'll just speak for myself here, mm-hmm. not for, uh, for AIG and Validus. I think what's really interesting um, in this market, so there's a number of things that go into pricing, right? So one thing we've talked about, we talked about the expected losses, mm-hmm. right? But you have to also consider the capital, right? And there's kind of these, or really four components. You've got, of course, expenses, which reinsurers tend to be um, only things like flying to podcasts, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you have um, expected loss, and then you have kind of a couple of risk loads, right? Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is, especially like if you look at, let's, let's go into Florida, right? I think the, we felt like, okay, this was something we understood. We thought we understood wind in Florida. We have a model, we have a lot of history, we're getting pretty good data, but then, oh, bad year, ah, another bad year, what's going on? And so if you just have one bad year, that's what we would call process risk, mm-hmm. right? So you would say, hey, okay, sometimes, you know, you flip the coin, it's going to come up heads or it's going to be tails. That's just randomness. Okay, right? But now as that coin keeps coming up tails, you start to say something's not right and you start to question the models. Yeah. So what you've had in Florida, as you say, the models didn't get us where we, they, they're not working. They're, they're missing something that's happening on the ground, mm-hmm. Right. And in this point, it's really about that inflation, that, that kind of fraud and claims fraud, which we can get into if you like. But then bring it back to the actuarial perspective, right? So you have, I have my history, my expected losses, and now we say, okay, this is new, this has changed, so that's going up. Mm-hmm. And then you say, now, I thought I, I have a higher model now, my model's going up, I got my process risk is kicking in, and then as well, I don't even know what the right model is Mm. and how up again it goes, right? So you have all these three steps all happening all at once. Yeah. Right? Um, And so, and that capital portion in particular, it's affecting, um, you know, your own calculations and the riskiness, but then also it's hitting the retro market. Yeah. Right? And those, the retro market is really on those last two steps. And if they're saying, okay, it's riskier than we thought, and we don't even understand it, um, they're heading for the hills. Yeah, and that's the trickle-down effect then, where if that capital starts to dry up a little bit or is harder to 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 get or more expensive, then that's felt to the reinsurers and then again down to the insurers. And I think there's a lot of concern that the insurance market will sort of have quite high rate increases as a result of the hardening reinsurance market. So Absolutely. that trickle-down effect is probably going to be felt here in the, in the coming years. Um, let's, stick, let's stay in Florida, because I think we talked about it in one of the earlier episodes on the, the news from last month, but you're seeing a little bit of legislation there. But Florida's always been known as like infamously litigious, um, huge amounts of sort of ambulance chasing on the casualty side, but also you have issues with how the process works in the homeowners' cases in events like wind and, and hurricane stuff. Um, where are you seeing that now? Is Do you think what the, the new legislation coming in is going to be helping that? Is it going to help soften the pricing in that market or or not? Yeah, and again, this is, um, you know, um, I think I took one class, law and mm-hmm. economics, so <laughs> I'll, I'll weigh in on with my, my limited legal expertise mm-hmm. a little bit here. But what's really interesting in Florida and, you know, 
I love my home state as a, as a proud Floridian, but there's some things, the, the fundamental issue was something called assignment of benefits, which was really about, you know, as a policyholder, the law was written such that if, um, Jared, you came to my house and said, hey, I think there's a hole in your roof. Mind if I take a look, I can fix it for you. I can sign one piece of paper and now you have the right to my claims, right? So you can not only fix it and then I go to the insurance company, but the independent adjuster can simply run the entire process. So they can become the policy holder. So that's the assignment of benefits. Yeah. In 49 other states, you can, most countries, you cannot do this. It's your claim, you have to follow the process yourself. And in Florida, you are able to assign this to a claims adjuster. And then even further, you would assign the right to sue the insurer for bad faith handling, sure. which in a normal claims experience is just extremely rare. And if that happens, then maybe the insurer really has done something wrong. Yeah. But what you saw was litigation factories where every single claim would generate a lawsuit. Yeah. And then the insurer is just trying to settle these, mm -hmm. right? And until they've, so that assignment of benefits, whatever reforms you make, if you didn't deal with assignment of benefits, it's not going to work. Yeah. So my understanding is the latest, really, legislation tries to adjust this, mm -hmm. right? And you saw a huge flurry of lawsuits coming in right before it started. Mm -hmm. So um, so that gives me some optimism. Yeah. But we have to wait and see yeah. how it starts to play through the market and everything else because it really is an industry there. Yeah. There's an industry of people who have focused on this and um as i think you described the billboards yeah. right you really do see these billboards yeah it's the most popular sort of billboard uh leasing company you know, approach that they have there although they're all rented by yes you know these sort of here's the phone number in 12 foot font yeah uh, about calling sort of emergency person 1-800 injured or yeah. this kind of thing yeah, yeah. These types of things um which and and you know it's uh it's sad, right, because there are plenty of people with legitimate claims and they need to get taken care of, but what you look at is how much of the money is actually getting back to the claimant, Yeah. right? When someone's got a claim, when they've experienced a personal tragedy or need the insurance company, we want to be there for them, right? But if 70% of that is going to these administrative costs and these litigation factories, that's not that's going to come back around in terms of premiums as well at the end of the day. And this is the promise of insurance and reinsurance. And, and the thing the industry's always tried to tackle or improve upon is how much of that premium dollar and then that claims dollar gets returned to the the original insured, whether that original insured is an insurer in a reinsurance case or right. a, a, um, a policyholder in an insurance case. But you're, you're having it where if that disparity becomes too large, the promise begins to break down and everything begins to, the sort of trust throughout the system begins to erode a little bit because you don't have it where people feel they're getting value out of this product. Everyone knows, or in our, at least at our side of the industry, recognizes that um, you're paying for claims some of the time, right? You're not going to recoup your premium each year because right. they understand the, the model of aggregating um, the pool of, of premiums towards the claims and things. But if it's something where you pay in for decades and decades and never get any recoveries, it begins to not make any sense, and, right. and that calculus begins to break. Um, when you're looking at the the trends, especially in this hard market now, we've touched on Florida and some some shifts that are happening there. We've touched on California and some of the, the events that are that have happened there. What what do you think is driving it to be sort of collectively hard? It's not because before we've seen sort of increases in right. micro hardening or localized hardening, if you will. Um, just making up terms. It's a podcast we can. <laughs> 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 but you have that sort of localized, like this market is getting right. hard. But you know we may not have seen as much of as as bad of losses in Japan or as bad of losses in in Europe. Is it because we're seeing kind of losses hitting all the all the various geographies kind of concurrently? Yeah, and I think that comes back to something else, which I would say, if you look at it, again, if you think about those different buckets, right, those different pieces of the risk, from the expected loss side, you've seen this inflation, right? And it's not just the eggs of the supermarket. Over the last, you know, five years, we've seen those things cost more, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's wildfires in California or flood in Australia, 
all of these things have seemed to just, the, the cost has gone up. And that can be due to a, a wide variety of factors, but the, the trend is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you've seen those kind of coming up everywhere. Um, and then, then other than that, it, it comes back to that kind of, um, as I described, you've seen enough losses in the last five years that investors are saying, hey, we're, we need to make money here, something's gotta change, or I'm pulling my capital. So you have that expected losses go up, right? Then you have that, again, the, uh, it seems like the process risk is worse and the parameter risk. Do we even understand all of these events, right? Because it does seem like you had the flood in Germany, for example, you had all these things happening. So there seems to be a steady kind of loss stream coming in. Um, coming back to what, from the actuarial side, right? What you tend to see is, you tend to see step changes, right? So you'd say, well, even if I had one loss, I don't like to change. I don't want to move too fast. My underwriters are going to be mad and their clients, why are you raising rates? Nobody's raising rates. So you kind of see actuaries, they'll stay at a certain level and they say, ah, okay, well, it's going up. Okay, Matt, well, that's more than just bad luck. And then boom, right? And now you don't have the capital cushion. You don't have more capacity coming in. Yeah. So all those factors are building together. Yeah, and that step changes quite a, a powerful visual in in recognizing the the shift in where rates go. And yes, and um, when we look at that and all that those those sort of numerous so the the myriad factors that you've outlined there, what then do you think it will take for the market to begin to soften? I think the perception feels now that we're going to be here for at least a little while. Where do you see it as what what types of things are on your sort of horizon of going, okay, if these things happen, maybe it's interest rates shifting or it's that you kind of go, then we might see this softening, but until that does, we this is kind of that new step. This is the new normal here. How do you guys think about that and forecast market sort of, uh, sort of peaks and, and, and troughs? Well, I would say if, if I could forecast where the market was going, <laughs> then I'd have my own podcast. Yeah. That's what I would be doing with my time. Back in Vegas. I'm actually auditioning, Ben. I hope you're okay out there. No. Um, the uh, Yeah, but I think it's the markets are notoriously hard to predict, right? Yeah. I, I would say what we're looking for is we need some clean years, right, first and foremost. We need some years where obviously there's always going to be losses somewhere, but we need some years where it's quieter, yeah. right? And I think going back to what we said before, now in the past when we were here, we kind of expected some clean years. Now our expectations are up here, and if we see a clean year, now we're going to be waiting a minute to get off this step, Yeah. right? So you're kind of going to need to get that credibility back with a couple of years, which in turn brings the investors back, right? Brings that retro capital back, and then we can start to see movement. Yeah. But I think there will be parts of the parts of the industry beyond property cat where it's already going to probably calm down earlier. Yeah. But um, I think that's what it's going to take for in the, in the high level view. Yeah. When it, it really highlights that partnership element with the insurers, right? And if, if the push is for them to have profitable or less um, loss affected years, they might need to be increasing direct rates in order to absolutely to have it where the claims that they're paying are not hitting um, as much of their programs are not eroding their capital position as heavily or you know the premiums that they're spending is more aligned with the claims that they're making uh, yeah. against their reinsurance book and and those types of things where if they have it for as you say a few years in a row it's like okay you've you have made the underlying adjustments to your right. underwriting that were needed and your book is behaving better and performing better now we can start softening it and i think you're right you'll have certain classes that are more aligned to that that kind of got caught up in the general updraft um that will go okay but it doesn't really apply to these ones just as much right so they'll slide down a bit more but do you think you'll see then um do you think that will drive uh more grouping of programs so like multi exposure multi peril sort of property property catastrophe as a high level analogy being bundled together mm. or do you think that will result in more fracturing of sedent books because i think you've seen this over time you've sort of seen this like kind of accordion effect where sometimes they'll group 
things together to try to get a better price. Sometimes they'll break them up because it's cheaper to do so that way. Do you have an, a thought as to which one of, that, of those will drive out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say my my, uh, my broker friends are extremely creative, yeah. and I think we'll see things. I think the classic kind of thing to do is you're taking one thing you like with something you don't like and say, hey, if you want this one, you got to get that one. So we've seen some of that already, so I think that may happen. Um, but I think it'll, it'll really be a – so I, I would expect some of that, but I think it's going to be a scramble, yeah. Jared, and trying to figure out how can I get this placed or what can I do or how can I approach this. And I think for um, you know for the Cedents as well, it's been a bit of a – you know I, I speak that as someone who was on the Cedents side. At times you could do things like those, um, those aggregates, for example, yeah. right, where you could put it all together in an aggregate. And as a sedent, if I can get all of my things into one deal and I'm all covered, I mean, that is just wonderful. Yeah. But that's not happening anymore, yeah. right? Because it's too much. It's too much of that. Again, coming back to that, if you have a really comprehensive cover, then all of that parameter risk, all of that unknown, right, is in there. Mm-hmm. And now I think on the reinsurance side, we're saying, wait, there was more in that parameter risk. There was more unknowns out there than we had kind of given credit for. Yeah. So I think that's going to probably buck against that trend and lead to more tighter def- definitions kind of um, yeah. in the future. Yeah, I think certainly you'll see some adaption on, on wordings and they'll continue to evolve to tighten um, what's being covered and what the intention of contracts right. is. Um, but it does lean back to the importance of having data in a way that you can understand and is cons- sufficiently consistent so that if you decide to group it together, it can do that comfortably and easily. Right. If you decide to break it apart, it can also do that. If you want to then understand what it would have looked like grouped together or broken apart for historical years, it's easy to do that. Um, we were in conversations um, over the last few days when you talk about um, students changing the book or changing the profiles. It's, out, it's so difficult right now to get like a true year-over-year historical view with this new approach that they're taking, right. if we can get better underlying data that allows you to kind of go, okay, we want to look at it that way, that's fine. And I can now look at the last five years as if I was looking at it this way now. And, and having it where we're using data as an asset to help the reinsurers understanding it comfortable with the risk, um, hopefully reducing the load that will come when there is that kind of gray area, that uncertainty. Um, and, and I wrote a piece on this on, on LinkedIn, but you talk about this might become like the golden era for brokers who can then look at those complex client um, challenges and take data in a way and throw it in various structures and manipulate it in a way that goes, what if we do something like this, right? And right. if that data can talk to the reinsurer as well, there's a comfort going, we can figure that we can understand and work with this approach to an, an alignment there and a partnership there, um, which I think will benefit the end client. Yeah, and I think that, and even the as sedent, right? I can say when we did some of these exercises, when when I was on that side, and if you get into your data, something you were really worried about might not be as bad as you thought, right? And I think some of that can also come out of these exercises, even if it's kind of pushed from the reinsurance side. Use the example of wildfires in California, which are you know um, unfortunately now a regular kind of uh, nonstop event, but they're also not going to be a capital draining event typically yeah right so there's more of that stuff now where if you're on the seat inside you might say if you've got your data all organized and nicely put together you can say okay you know what we can take a cap here we don't have to get this low down protection for wildfire it's not going to be a capital event we can manage it a little differently yeah right but if you don't understand your data if you don't have it nicely set up then you might say, oh, gosh, wildfire, I saw it on the news, I'm really concerned, I'm going to put it down here, and that's going to be very expensive now, Yeah. right? Yeah, when you're doing that sort of work, what are the biggest challenges you face with the data, both both with your, I think, if you could answer in sort of two hats, okay. hat as the sedent hat when you sort of worked on the buying side, but also now your hat as a reinsurer, as an inwards writer, where do you see the biggest challenges in, in getting the data together, understanding the data, trying to get a bottoming out of what your book is doing. What are the difficulties that you had there and have there? Yeah, I think on the, I'll, I'll answer first with my my old hat, mm-hmm. I suppose, in the on the seat in space was, you know, 
a lot of companies, especially the larger ones, were built on top or out of other companies, right? So you've got different legacy systems. Oh, this was the firm we acquired 20 years ago, but we never changed it. Or this is in a different country, especially on global programs or different ways of reporting it. So just um, just to get that data together and in shape, right, I think it was a, it was a huge challenge. Um, and then to say, okay, now I've got this data and how do I adjust? How do I change it, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's... Um, just the the process of getting it organized, and then as well, trying to understand, well, inflation is not one rate, right? It's changes depending on where you are, what you're buying, what you're looking at, um, and how has my my own book changed, right? Um, So I would say it's getting that data together uh, and making those adjustments, and then from the, with my new hat, Mm -hmm. um, I would say it's, those same sorts of questions, but then also um, everyone's sending you something different. Yeah. Right. So if you're trying to do things like, um, you know, we have a, a good sized casualty book, for example, and if you're trying to go through an exercise, you know, as people are more worried about regional banks in the US, you might say, okay, how's my, what is my exposure to a particular bank? If you're going to do that, everybody, you've all of your students might have put the bank name somewhere else, yeah. right? So you have that exercise as on the actuarial side that ends up on your desk typically to try to get it organized and put it somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And the way I kind of picture it to people is say, look, you know, I'm on the clock. I've got to get a quote. I'm dealing with all this data. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. But do you really want to have data delivered in such a way that the person putting a price on it is in a really bad mood by the time they have to make that pick, yeah. right? And yeah. whereas if it's nice and easy and clean, you can yeah. get there. So I think that's, you know, those are probably the issues that I would see. Yeah, I think that the data consistency is important. And we've we've talked about trying to move towards a standard of which submission data, at least what it includes and what's covered there. Um, I think that would benefit the industry immensely in just that it would allow you to sort of more quickly work through that. Um, and if we can get it where data um, for reinsurers becomes more of an asset where you're not looking at broadly each submission sort of in isolation, yes. but it begins to fill a bigger audience where you can go, what is our exposure to a certain in, you know bank or similar? And again, there's when you have these, when you're doing this work, it's similar. It's easy to kind of identify all the cases where they may have just slightly misspelled it or typed it differently or included ink with a full stop at the end or not, and these types of things. But what it often misses is the fact that the subsidiary in Wisconsin has a different name altogether for historical reasons that like this right. bank bought, and it would absolutely be covered in like a, a bank run, but um, might fall off or be missed entirely in an analysis that's sort of run in the way you're doing it currently because there's nowhere as you said there's nowhere near enough bandwidth to review the in you know the the 10k of every single bank or or similar that you might be working through so those are the things that lend itself to a complexity and a risk that sits somewhere there that just feels like it's this we're we're comfortable knowing that that gray exists Mm. but only so far as that it's not getting too black in, in its darkness of what could right. be buried there. Right. Um, so I think trying to get to a better way to do that data is important. Stuff that we think about is how do we help the seed and do that themselves because that will benefit the broker as well as their reinsurers down chain. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a hassle that I think a lot of the big companies are really, really wrestling with. Yeah, and it's one of those things if you want to take it into a little bit of what you could do mm. if you had that data. So I was here as well for this um, um, Z-Wave cyber conference this week, and we are talking about cyber, which is, again, if you talk about you know unknown risks, cyber is a prime example. And one of those things you'd love to do is map those connections, yeah. right? So when you look at catastrophe like a, a hurricane, I can see, right, that um, you know Miami and Fort Lauderdale are right next to each other, right? But I can't tell what companies are connected quite so easily, mm-hmm. right? So if you wanted to be able to do that, you have to have 
data, maybe it's, it could be an industry data or like at a, at an, for the whole, the full, whole insurance industry. But if you have something to map those connections, now I can go make a model. Now I can go do this and, and a greater, now I can reckon for the reinsurers, well, your real exposure to let's say the healthcare industry and all of its associated parts is like this. And then now I've squeezed that last component. I've squeezed that parameter risk down and I can say, oh, okay, I can write that. Yeah, I can do this deal. I can deploy my capital here. And then also now you've got more comfort. Now the retro markets can say, ah, I understand this new cyber model and I can look at it and I can be comfortable with it. Maybe we can do ILWs and all these kinds of things yeah. that without that real data, you just, yeah, you can't do it. What? It's interesting because it, it it sort of lends itself to how do we how do we introduce like net new like risk categories and risk types cyber being kind of the most prominent newer one, but at the moment I think there is a constraint where if so much time is spent by the industry reworking data for well understood classes right like there's a huge amount of effort going in and we talked about it from you know the background on contingency and similar of we can price a brand new type of risk, but you're going to have to give us some time to understand what might be adjacent to it, what might be the comparables, what, you know, how might we understand the exposure we're going to be um, taking on. And that's, that's valuable work, but weirdly, until we can get efficient enough with the stuff we really understand, that type of work either gets massively underserved and right. just, you know, quite... Um, ham-fisted in its pricing and in just sort of going, it's about this. And um, but it, but it almost does a disservice to the creativity of the insurers and the creation of net new types of products because there's not enough bandwidth um, from the traditional stuff left over, right, to do that type of work. No, absolutely. And it's um, you want to spend your time on value-added work, and you want to create something new, and so on, not just survive. Yeah. Right. And I think when it comes to dealing with the data and dealing with those challenges, I think um, you know if if some good things come out of this tough period in the hard market um, for everybody, I think a better approach to data and a cleaner approach and a reckoning with what you can do will be one of the one of the positive outcomes. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, and I think there's a a real opportunity there. I think we are on the cusp of that becoming where the industry goes. Um, you've always seen this. Once you get that sort of foundational work in place, it leads to a spike in creativity, a spike in dynamism where there's people tackling net new and creating net new and in a way that is prohibited until you have, like if you look at like a great, a Steve Case model of like three waves, you have the foundationals of the internet it's like okay. it can connect CERN to other CERN computers, right? And then it's like, oh, but now this connectivity is happening. We can do some basic things, and it's like social networks or music file transfer and these things. Um, but once you get those sort of basic pieces set up, the explosion of creativity out of net new where it's like begins to have an, in, an actual impact on like the world we live in, right? right? Businesses and economies and everything are shifting. Think about something like retail, the amount of stores now that are digital first and their like high street shop is like a um almost like a like showroom the, right. of what their product is you don't buy it there and take it home you go right. and like touch it and then order it from their little tablet <laughs> and have it arrive at your house the next day amazing it's just a it's a fundamental shift in what existed but you can only do that once you've set those sort of foundational components I think with the structuring of the data, the speed by which we can transfer it through just basic internet protocols that have already you know, been in place, we'll get to a point where insurance can really lean into creatively solving problems, not only for the end consumer by allowing the insurers to be more creative, but making it where those net new products are something that the reinsurers can really wrap their head around more quickly and begin to understand it and leverage data and understand where it might sit with everything else that they're doing, right? And get comfortable with pricing it. No, if you really have that, you know that that uh, crystal blue data lake, right, with everything there for you to access, then you can say, ah, what if I try this, yeah. right? Or what if I apply that? And that's that's really the fun stuff and yeah. why we love reinsurance, right? Yeah. Is to do those things, <laughs> yeah. not to try to figure out if this comma is in the right place or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think there's tremendous potential. I think cyber will also drive that. 
mm-hmm. right? There's the things that are happening in the industry, but I think with that that cyber risk, quite literally, if you don't know, you you've got to reckon with this, yeah. right? Um, and right now, there's so many um, creative people trying to figure that out, um, but without that data, it is a, it's a tough one. Yeah. So we'd be remiss to not give a specific price at challenge okay. uh, to you on this. So. Um, the, the one I was thinking about, and I wanted to make it where it's, it feels like something that we're beginning to approach. And we're looking at the rise of autonomous, and especially in the U.S., a particular focus on autonomous as it pertains to, like, shipping, like the amount of mm. industrial truck drivers who are across the United States um, delivering things. But if you look at a fleet of auto- purely autonomous vehicles who are now going, we should buy insurance. <laughs> um, <laughs> the accidents won't be zero, despite the the, the claims of yes. what the AI can do. Um, but if you looked at like an autonomous fleet, so Walmart then says we're making an entirely autonomous fleet for all of our trucks. Right. How might you go about pricing something like that? Yeah, no, that's a good example, because this is, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it feels like a you know a huge leap forward. You have robots driving around, but in a sense, it is still part of a continuum, right? I mean, before there were robots driving, right? You have the little thing that beeps when you're getting too close when you're backing up. There's already been assisted driving over time. So what I would look at is that how much did those other safety measures, how much did they improve it? I would look at the kind of historical data we've had from truckers, mm-hmm. right? And then try to say, okay, what what data do we have for the for the autonomous vehicles that are out there now, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to, which I would all expect to be probably a bit better mm-hmm. than what we've got, but then you've got to add the new risk, right? Now downloading software update, right? Something goes wrong with the AI. And so that's where you're flipping more into this kind of, whether it's kind of product liability. So you'd be going to look and say, okay, where have I had other programs fail or other things? What are the safeguards in place? And then you're basically adding a bit of that catastrophe load because typically truckers would fall asleep one at a time. But there is this risk now that the algorithm that's driving the trucks, they're all turning left at once, Yeah. (laughs) right? And that's where you'd have to kind of look and see, okay, where have we seen these programs fail before? Mm. And how often is that happening? Right, and then add a load for that. Yeah, which again is a mix of those two loads I was talking about. Where you say some of this is just that fear load, or that we don't understand it yet, and then some of it is going to be truly yes, okay, no, we've seen that one in a hundred times. This software, this critical software, will break. Yeah. Right, and then what are the consequences of that? Yeah. Right. So I would uh, probably approach it like that. Yeah. Taking each of those pieces one at a time. If you were to, if that if that kind of risk came across the desk, would you try to bundle it with the, a traditional fleet book as well, or would you try to separate it? Like, how would you think about it being better? Kind of going, well, we can offset it by what mm. we understand better there, or to go, no, we'll write that entirely separately and charge perhaps quite a bit more for it, but you know it's kind of isolated from a. a yeah, book. I would definitely want to be able to identify it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be happy to hear like, oh, also, there's a few uh, (laughs) robots in here, but don't worry too much. It's fine. Uh, We'll tell you how it goes later. So you would want to understand it, right? I think whether it's in or out is a little bit of how you manage your portfolio. So I think, you know, we were talking about capital earlier, right? And if you isolate it, then you're also isolating that cat risk, right? And if you think that is a material risk, then you know, that smaller book is going to get hit with that, yeah. right? So it might make sense to put it together, as you said, to give it some ballast, some cushion. Um, but from the sort of actuarial perspective, we would say it's coming into our whole portfolio. Yeah. So as long as I'm not also writing all of Uber's autonomous stuff or do I have other exposure to the same software that's driving drones or yeah. what else is out there, then then, you know, as far as my pricing goes, I probably would would not change the approach so much. Yeah, yeah this is this is a portfolio strategy, isn't it, going if right. over-indexed just this one class. Right. You, you, and you see that being a risk in, in myriad ways. I think Silicon Valley Bank was a great example. They were 
way over indexed to a specific type of yes company or industry and when all of a sudden that began to shift a bunch of the startups weren't getting more funding which was just injecting us to be with cash and you had it when the the vcs who were telling them where to bank have also pull out of that you saw this accelerated run because they were all they wasn't a huge swath of like normal businesses and little grocery stores all banking there right so it, it caused an out like a disproportionate impact similar to this if you have a portfolio like that one area might take a dent right but like but your casualty book is largely unaffected or your property cat book is largely unaffected by this thing and and you get to sort of balance out exposures and in, in certain products to others that you understand better exactly and and just kind of reframing that again is from the actuarial sense what you would say is how how much is that contributing to your bankruptcy risk or you're missing the dividend risk we talked yeah. about a little bit before and if you've got too much in there and one virus or one bug can then tra- have an impact on your tail, then that's going to get hugely priced. And that's going to draw a lot of capital to make the, a reasonable return. So however you manage it, either that's where you come in with a retro maybe, or you're looking at, uh, as you said, spreading the risk in other areas, but getting into other areas, then that's how you can manage it. Yeah. But And it goes back to, again to the data, right? Because when we think about some of these things, we, on the reinsurance side, we look at our portfolio and we want, it's, you don't always know the hidden connections, yep. right? Because if that is not in the submission data, you're worried that all of a sudden I'm writing um, every bodega in Brooklyn and you had no idea. You thought you were writing Whole Foods in Manhattan and suddenly you have a, a different problem. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's such a fascinating uh, industry because of these types of things. And we appreciate you spending so much time diving into the nuance sure. of this. This will likely be a, a two-part episode, perhaps. I'm not sure. We'll see how, how, how long we go. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on. No, my pleasure. And, you know, no rush back, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so. If there's ever a, a gap, you, you've, got a, you've got a standing order to come in and, and fill the seat. No, that's right. But you should bring in some guest hosts. That's like yeah. they do on Saturday Night Live, well, right? We'll come yeah. on and do one in Bermuda, <laughs> supersede uh, you, podcast on the road. I think you were overdue. You went to Munich, right? We so did. now you've got yeah. to uh, come out to the island, I'm yeah. sure. We could do we'll it do from... it in Hawaiian shirts. and <laughs> We'll have to have it where they can see the socks and the, the shorts. No, no, no Hawaiian shirts. No, no, no. <laughs> we'll get you the Bermuda. We'll get you out the with the Bermuda, Bermuda way. way. Absolutely. Perfect. Look forward to it. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure.